0: This is Salma Karashi for our Neuroscientist Talk Shop, the University of Texas at San Antonio's neurobiology podcast, or I should a neuroscience podcast. I kind of oscillate between the two things, but we are both always uh, simultaneously. So today is January 23rd, 2020, and our guest is Matt Vandermeer, who is an assistant professor in the Department of Psychological and Brain Sciences at Dartmouth. Hi, Matt. Hi. His lab is using a combination of neurobiological and computational approaches to build a circuit level understanding of the representations and transformations that lie at the intersection of learning, memory, and prediction during decision tasks. There are many strains to his work, but today's discussion, I think, is going to center on how he's mining oscillations within and across interacting brain areas to build working models of the ventral striatum's role in motivated behavior generally. So around the room, we've got Charlie Wilson.
1: Hello. We've
0: got Todd Troyer. Good afternoon. We've got new faculty, Francesca Savelli. Hi. Hi, Francesco. And me, I'm your host, Salma Karashi. So the classical areas that we think of, um, where field oscillations have generated key mechanistic insight into function are kind of, there, there's these highly structured areas like hippocampus and cortex. Can you start us off <laughs> by making the case for why oscillations can usefully inform studies of an anatomically non-layered area like ventral striatum?
2: Yeah, great question. And that was kind of my starting point sort of historically as well, like seeing how people thought about hippocampus and theta oscillations and sharp wave ripples and theta gamma coupling and all these beautiful kind of oscillatory phenomena. Um, And I thought, well, that's been really helpful in understanding interactions between different hippocampal subregions. And why isn't anybody applying that to the stratum? or you know, maybe some people are, but it doesn't seem like it has nearly the level of sort of prominence as it has, as you point out, in cortex and hippocampus. And I very quickly realized, yeah, it is in part because there are these huge pitfalls of if you are in a non-layered structure, it's much harder to interpret a fuel potential. Um, But does that mean we should just give up and say, oh, that means that we can't use oscillations or they aren't going to be helpful in understanding what's going on there? Um, I think the answer is, well, we still can use them, but you just have to be much more careful in exactly how you interpret the fuel potential and maybe even say, well, for some things, maybe the field potential isn't helpful at all, and you should really be looking at what the spikes are doing, how they are synchronizing with other neurons, um, how they relate to other brain areas. Um, because I think in the big picture, you know, when you have a, a brain area where every one of its inputs or most of the you know, strong inputs are so oscillatory, when you have all the ingredients in place of the neurons having particular resonance properties. Um, You know, it's hard to imagine how thinking about that in uh, in mechanistic terms, how it wouldn't have an impact on how those neurons respond, how uh, they're going to transform all these different oscillating inputs, how they're going to interact. It just means that some of the, in a way, shortcuts that work in hippocampus and cortex, because you have this beautiful organization, maybe don't work in the stratum, and you have to be careful in, you know, being aware of that and maybe working around it. But, uh, you know, it's just we've been spoiled in... Uh, sort of being able to use field potentials that come from these organized uh, structures in other places. Um, but that has no bearing on whether oscillations themselves, like as an underlying phenomenon, are you know, important or not. Right? It's kind of what experimental shortcuts or access points are available to us. And maybe that's a little harder in the stratum.
0: So why are they, are they behaviorally relevant, first of all? You've done some of that work. And how local are they?
2: Yeah, so um, most of the work that I've done in oscillation and stratum has focused uh, on these gamma rhythms for a few reasons. Like, one is just if you stick, stick an electrode in there, you know, they just pop out. Like, they're enormous, they're beautiful. You think, wow, look at that. Um, and so they definitely are related to uh, the sort of tasks that, you know, I've been involved in, like animals running around on mazes. Like, you see um, particular um, patterns where high-frequency gamma oscillations are more prominent when animals approach rewards or just get to a reward site, and then that kind of shifts to a lower gamma frequency. Um, If you compare trials where the animals get reward versus trials where they're behaviorally sort of in a similar state, like they're, you know, immobile, waiting for reward, but the reward doesn't come, you know, you get a slightly different pattern of those oscillations. So they're behaviorally relevant in the sense that they seem to be aligned to various task events. Um, you know, of course, there's many other examples and other frequency bands in the stratum and the basal ganglia more broadly as well. But in the case of those gamma oscillations, um, you know, all the signs point to them not being generated locally in the stratum, but in nearby piriform cortex. Um, so we've done uh, basically current source density analysis. Like, if you put probes with lots of sites in there, that points to... Uh, a piriform cortex source. If we do sort of a crude way of blocking olfactory input to the piriform cortex, um, we see those gamma oscillations go away. So in the local field, even when your electrode is placed in ventral stratum, you're really picking up on, you know, a field that's generated a few millimeters over uh, in the piriform cortex. Um, So that's one of the pitfalls in interpreting, you know, of fuel potential in the stratum. That, it's not to say that stratum couldn't generate local fuels, but at least those gamma oscillations um, probably are not generated there.
1: So how much people think about uh, per- behavioral modulation in a piriform cortex? <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, right. Um, you know, so there's a big literature in olfactory processing, as you might expect. Um, you know, so some of the people who've you know, worked on beautiful kind of fine timescale dynamics of what happens during a single sniff Um, You know, it seems like sniffing itself is rhythmic at sort of a theta frequency, and then within each sniff, you know, you get these systematic gamma oscillations that, uh, you know, again, are, you know, really beautifully organized that uh, seem to be related to, um, yeah, uh, acquisition of olfactory information. So, Leslie Kay is one prominent uh, person who's shown sort of the, interplay of theta, gamma, beta oscillations. Um, I think what people who study olfaction specifically don't necessarily tend to do is put their animals in these kind of freely moving, like maze-based tasks, where you know they typically have an animal that's, you know, if not completely head-fixed, at least you know nose poking into some sort of odor port, um, and then kind of aligning activity to these stimuli. Um, you know, and as to my knowledge, there hasn't been a lot of work on yeah what happens in piriform cortex when you have freely moving animals. Um, you know, who who are in these very different settings. Um, So, yeah, I would say the short answer is, um, you know, in in the settings that we're looking at it, we don't know a whole lot about piriform cortex. Um, But most of these limbic system areas, so not just your ventral stratum, but much of the hippocampus, prefrontal cortex, like, they get prominent inputs, especially in rodents. Um, So it seems like it might be an important area to understand yeah, how, how the synchronization and information processing more generally work when you have such a big shared input uh, in there
3: could you solve the problem just by doing your experiment in a bigger brain because I mean yeah right so I'd love to know <laughs> like if
2: you know you have uh, your human subject who for one reason or another has you know electrodes in Stratum. Like, for a while, it was explored as a target for uh, obsessive-compulsive disorder, for treatment-resistant depression. So we have some cases of patients um, with electrodes there. There's a few really nice papers from uh, Nikolai oxmacher's group um, you know, showing things like um, the pattern of local field potentials is different depending on whether the subject gets positive or negative feedback in uh, a banded task, where they do have to do probabilistic learning based on feedback. Um, What they say is, well, our electrodes are constructed such that we have, say, four sites on these macro electrodes, and we can reference against another one of the sites. So we are getting rid of, you know, the most of volume-conducted, like, common signal. But, you know, when we do this in our rodent recordings, because you have a gradient, you know, sure, you can subtract a signal from some other part of your array, but that doesn't eliminate that you know, volume-conducted signal, because it, it decays as a function of distance. And so you'll still be left with some component of it. And I would love to see what happens if we were to do our you know, um, nose occlusion, so just put a nose plug in you know, one nostril um, of one of these patients and understand you know, how much of that those rhythms is really likely tell to us be... What, tell
0: us what that does. Yeah, so,
2: so, so in the rat, um, if you're recording a ventral straight or fuel potential and you block the ipsilateral nostril, it seems to completely get rid of these gamma oscillations in the local fuel potential. And previous work uh, by Case Hungerwolf had shown that if you're recording a piriform cortex and you do that same thing, you abolish those gamma oscillations. So that's another indicator that suggests to us, you know, a lot of those ventral striatal local fuel potentials are volume-conducted. So how about, how, about
1: lower fre- sorry. how about lower frequencies? Do you get rid of uh, theta or delta or whatever?
2: Yeah, so um, we've tried to look at it and realize that our, our tasks probably weren't the best for getting clear versions of those kind of signals. So, you know, the gamma oscillations seem to be most prominent when the animal is stationary. Um, and that's, you know, when, when we see a lot of delta and theta is more when the animal is running. Um, and those experiments really weren't set up to do that well. Um, for theta, uh, we now think, and that's in line with um, what David Robbe has shown, that You get a lot of theta coming from the lateral septum, um, sorry, medial septum, Um, so kind of on the other side of the stratum. Um, You know, delta, we haven't been able to localize clearly. Um, My suspicion is that it's likely to also come from piriform, and based on a few animals where, you know, we did have good delta. Um, And so I think most of the really prominent rhythms that we find in the local field potential probably... Yeah, are not local, but we've also seen evidence that you can generate uh, steridal components of the fuel potential, for instance, because we've started to do optogenetic manipulation of steridal interneurons, and you definitely see sort of an evoked potential, um, you know, when you start stimulating those neurons synchronously. It's just it seems relatively small, you know, compared to, uh, yeah, what comes from these nearby areas, even when you use a highly artificial Kind of synchronous stimulus of you know, optogenetically driving a bunch of interneurons.
3: So, gamma in all these other cortical areas, not piriform cortex, frontal cortical areas, and so on, is that related to the piriform cortex gamma? So, if you right. stop piriform cortex gamma with nose occlusion, does it stop it everywhere?
2: Yeah, so we've looked uh, in prelimbic cortex, infralimbic cortex, anterior cingulate, so all the sort of medial prefrontal areas in, in the rodent. Um, I think there you don't see gamma as it's as large in, say, orbitofrontal cortex. Um, in orbitofrontal cortex, you get rid of most of the local field potential gamma as well um, with our you know mm-hmm. nose seclusion. In these other areas, it becomes a little harder to tell. Like as you go more dorsal. The gamma oscillations just get smaller, which by itself might suggest, well, the closer you get to piriform cortex, the more of it you see, but I think you'd really have to do kind of a source localization, whether that's current source density or some other way to be able to identify, you know, is the gamma you see there.
3: How Uh, How rapidly does the nose occlusion work? Is it immediate? Well,
2: th- so, so the Can way I just we
3: wipe out gamma? By gamma? <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, so it suggests some wild things. Like if you really believe that those oscillations are important for communication, like what happens when.
1: Well, <laughs> when you try to go like
2: this, you don't communicate. Exactly. <laughs> 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 yeah, so clearly it can't be that simple, but there are interesting associations of people showing these connections between, depending on whether you're in your inspiration or expiration phase of the cycle. So I'm thinking of like Jay Gottfried's work, for instance, saying that you're more likely to remember words in these arbitrary word lists, right? And there's some evidence that, you know, in early stages of Parkinson's disease that you get sort of alterations to breathing. Um, like there, there may be sort of unexpected connections with breathing-related rhythms that, you know, I'm only just starting to you know, tangentially get involved in. Like I didn't seek. You know, come into this. like, think, okay, I really, I really want to understand piriform cortex and breathing. Although, you know, I'm increasingly seeing how fundamental that seems to be in, in ways that I never really appreciated. Um, so, so yeah, sort of your your question of how does these piriform gamma is related to other areas? Like, in the closer you are to it, like that can generate such a big field that first of all, you have to deal with the possibility of volume conduction. It's not to say that you know an area like OFC or pre doesn't also generate its own local rhythm, but you know, given how close it is, it's going to have a big volume conducted component. And then on top of that, you probably have direct inputs from piriform cortex to several of these areas, so that even if you have a local component, like it might be entrained to piriform cortex inputs. Um, so yeah, especially in the rodent, you know, you're really dealing with these powerful inputs to an interconnected network that... Um, yeah, it's going to be a big contributor to rhythms yeah. in those areas. I think ultimately um, a lot of these answers
4: come back to relating the spiking activity of cells and neurons right. to these local field potentials. So <clears throat> it was really nice in your talk, you know, you pointed out, you reminded us of a lot of people used to think of oscillations like the noise of the engine for many years. And for example, in the hippocampus that you studied, yeah, it's like. I would point to something like phase precession of place cells, this phenomenon in which the spiking of the place cells progress with respect to the log of field potential, something that says, well, there's something more than just the noise of the engine here, and we still haven't figured out exactly. We know the phase precession there is telling us something really important, we just don't know what it is. And, you know, it might be mechanistic, it might be, Causal, it might be, it might be phenomenal, but it's telling yeah. us something. So maybe something like that, even in the Striatum. Um, I mean, uh, you showed also like you know phase precession in different circumstances. It's very important in relating. Um, uh, you know, ultimately this 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 log of field potential, potential. There's so many variables and yeah. and the, the the genesis of it is always kind of confusing. But the spiking you know, of the neurons and the relation that can potentially point us in the right direction. And one thing in your talk um, that I was really interested in is I'm seeing all these widespread um, locking of mm-hmm. phases of these neuron, the striatum. So they're all uh, modulated by these oscillations, but they don't have, there's not a single preferred phase across the population, the way I understood yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, it looks very different than hippocampus. And it just reminds me, like, um, for example, um, ideas that have been also in, in the hippocampus, uh, for example, from subcortical areas, like the medial septum, think, talking, thinking, for example, Todd Blair's work, right. um, and whether there is really like some kind of phase code there of some sort, and I was wondering if you looked at whether, even if they um, have different phases preferred, whether the phase lag stays stable between pairs of cells. So if there is still like a synchrony, even if phase like if you can even talk about synchrony inside the ventral striatum, because that could give you a way to say, well, the ventral striatum is just doing more than just relaying what the prefrontal cortex is doing and it's taking part into this oscillatory code.
2: Yeah, so I think in general, that's a great question of looking at the coordination across different cells, because yeah. so far I've just shown you, yeah, for one cell at a time, you know, what rhythms does that cell tend to show a systematic relationship to? And I didn't tell you at all about, yeah, pairs of cells yes. or somehow ensembles. And yeah, I think absolutely that that would be a useful thing to understand, especially if you, know, you think it, about it from a downstream perspective also, right? That the level of synchrony across different cells might be meaningful for the next stage, like in that processing loop. Mm-hmm. Um, and... I think one thing that's always striking when you look at the stratum, like as a somebody coming from looking at hippocampal place cells, like you're sort of used to being able to compute cross correlograms right. because you're going to be able to find neurons that have partially overlapping place fields and they have these really systematic mm-hmm. sort of theta-peaked um, CCGs. But in the stratum, you know, firing in the medium spiny neurons is a lot sparser mm-hmm. and it's harder to find pairs that have enough, sort of overlap in where they're active, that you can do that. It's not to say that it's not possible, um, but you just have to record from many neural neurons in order mm-hmm. to have an estimate of those cross correlations, mm-hmm. and maybe at the level of the fast-spiking interneurons, it might be easier to do, um, and I think there, um, you know, a few years ago, Josh Burke looked at sort of pairs of fast-spiking interneurons, and found that the changes in rate were sort of surprisingly unrelated, that mm-hmm. you, know, you could get one interneuron doing one thing and another doing something totally different, that it wasn't that they were behaving sort of as a coherent population, but he didn't look at kind of the uh, fine timescale synchronization, right. and so I think that's absolutely an area that, that's not been explored much yet. Mm-hmm.
3: Um, I think that originally that. the reason people were interested in field potentials in the striatum anyway, and this I think this may be true in a more general way, is not because they thought the field potential was causing anything, but no. it just became a reference signal. So you know that all the cells are, it, are um, living in this same temporally paced world, right. temporally paced by theta. So if I see one cell that's firing at 30 degrees on theta, and I see another cell that's firing at 30 degrees on theta, I know they're synchronized with each other, I don't have to record from two cells to do that. And so in that case, I don't care what theta is. I just, theta is a way for me to tell what cell is firing and what right, relationship right. to other cells.
2: right. Except but, one limitation of that is that when, you know, the, on average that may be true, but that doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, in an actual intact brain, like those cells are... Doing that at the same time, right? It might be that you know on one trial, like one cell has that, you know, thirty degree property, but the other cell is quiet, and then the next trial, you know, the roles might be reversed. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's a way to get an indirect estimate of what you're talking yeah, about. So that,
4: that, yeah. So that is yeah. Now that is an indirect estimate, but uh, there's you yeah. know what you just said. You know, the, the power in seeing like the um, the actual synchrony. And uh, it helps you narrow down the various hypotheses you might have. Like, say, for example, okay, this is just resonance versus, um, you know, actual synchronization. Yeah, some coordination. Um, mm-hmm. The the network, you know, it, that local network is more synchronized mm-hmm. than you would expect just based on the inputs coming in.
3: So, it's right yeah. on the very slow up and down state oscillations in the which it shares with the cortex yeah, right. in sleep, provided a really powerful way for single-unit studies to connect the data from different cells together yeah, into right, a single Because right. that's such a global a thing.
2: kind of phenomenon that and so yeah, most it really the, works.
3: And, I, and most of the correlations you see in the, in the striatum are associated with some slow thing, right. something like that. It's very prominent. It's also true in the cerebral cortex. So that, it became possible for people to record cortical EEG and record from right. striatal spikes, and they didn't think the cortical EEG was a local field potential, yeah. and the striatal was being generated there, but it became a great time standard for comparing spiking in all these different cells, because it was global, because it was happening everywhere in phase.
2: Yeah. So Actually, I, re- I, re- I love that analogy, because you know, when people hear, like, oh, that local field potential is actually generated in piriform cortex, okay, that maybe some people take it to mean that we just, just ignore it, right? But you know, like I showed in my talk, there's a lot of information there about what striatum is up to, right? And you know, this is sort of an example that you just point out of uh, another non-local field potential that's tremendously informative about what is happening. You just have to be cautious about, well, it's not directly generated there, so there could be circumstances under which they dissociate. And yeah, I think we're still in the early stages of figuring out um, what, what is such a circumstance. Like, does it ever happen that stratum totally ignores piriform cortex so that you know, the field potential becomes completely unrelated to what the spikes are doing there?
3: And of course, the field potential is full of uh, uncertainty <laughs> yeah, under right. the best circumstance right. in, the, in anywhere right. in the brain. <laughs> because the, neuron, that field potential is not the signal that any one neuron is getting. Right. And uh, when people have recorded intracellularly and field potentials at the same time, they see that the intracellular signal that resembles the field potential is relatively small. And that makes perfectly great sense because the field potential has to be something held in common in lots of different current generators. Right, right. And that, And phase precession in the hippocampus is a pretty good example, and I may, I'm not a real expert on that, but... I understand that there's a, two or three models of phase precession, and all of them require that the intracellular signal be different right. from exactly. the extracellular signal. Systematically
2: faster, that's right.
3: And so the, the reason this cell's firing at a different phase on theta is because it's theta, the thing that it's responding to, is the theta you're recording extracellularly. Yeah. And uh, so we have to be... I mean, I think we ought to use field potentials with... Uh, yeah, with some care,
2: yeah. th- right? Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> especially when it's like even less local than maybe uh-huh. in the ideal circumstance. But yeah, I, I also want to emphasize that like the you know, few potentials have been helpful, but it's not the only reason why you might care about oscillations in the stratum, right? And I think you know, your work, Charlie, is a great example of demonstrating how different cell types in the stratum have specific resonance properties that, uh, you know, for some cell types are relatively fixed and for others can really depend on like their recent spiking history. Um, and you know, regardless of you know what might be going on in some fuel potential, like that's bound to affect how those neurons respond to different converging inputs. And yeah, it's just harder to access that in vivo when you don't have the shortcut of a local fuel potential. Um, but you know, we'd still want to understand, well, how what is the interplay of all those local uh, or Intrinsic cell properties, their local circuit interactions with those inputs.
3: So I guess the the independently of all the technical business about what you happen to be measuring, the the interesting question has to do with how groups of cells work together to create a signal that comes out of that group as opposed to the individual neuron's signal. And groups of neurons send their axons to converge on neurons downstream, and that neuron is receiving an input not just from a one neuron, but from That's a right. whole group of neurons. And now that whole group of neurons somehow gets coordinated. And one view of that is that it's coordinated by uh, repetitive signals, by periodic signals. Right. And uh, Are there others? Are there other angles we ought to take? What if it turned out that oscillations weren't the way that worked, but it... Could we think of another, is there another way?
2: Yeah, I I guess, you know, there's different, I mean, the term oscillation is sort of broad enough to encompass sort of multiple subversions of that idea where one I think of is kind of centric or centered on the downstream population, that if there exists some sort of rhythmic fluctuation downstream, then the timing of the inputs might matter. But you could also say, okay, forget about what the downstream neurons are up to, just if the input side is more synchronous, then you know that's going to be more able to evoke downstream spikes. And then, I guess the most prominent idea is that it's like synchronization in the gamma range, because it's within sort of the membrane time constant and fast enough to escape uh, various kind of inhibition that might occur. Now, whether you call that oscillations, I guess you know maybe more accurately, it doesn't have to be a sort of rhythmic repeating signal, right, then you're just talking about, well, you have to have sufficient amount of synchrony um, to be able to evoke a postsynaptic response. Um, and for some people, like, that, that is not sort of oscillatory. Um,
3: so like in reflex, in the reflex arc way of thinking of the 1960s,
2: mm-hmm.
3: you would imagine some stimulus that would activate a few neurons... But that wouldn't be enough to do a response, to make a reflex. And you turn up the stimulus, and now these are brief synchrony events that don't repeat. They are right. solitary waves. Yeah, exactly. And the, that thing gets larger and larger, and at some point it recruits enough interneurons. There's something in the spinal cord, and boom, you see the reflex. So that's, um, that's a non Repeating non-periodic yeah. version of the just group activity level notion, like we just need enough. It yeah. just takes Right, right, exactly. Which is probably a little bit too simple to really. Wash. Yeah, like, maybe some pieces like work. Like yeah. yeah. right. So that the, 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 the uh, what's the difference? I guess between between that imagining everything as non-periodic. Solitary events, or maybe sequences of solitary events, or thinking of things as oscillatory. Like what, what do we gain from a signal processing perspective or something like that? That's what I'm wondering.
2: Right, so, so I guess there's... Maybe what you are asking is, kind of from an engineering perspective, like if you're going to build you know, a nervous system, like, is, is there something that you gain by yeah, that's you know, right. endowing that's it with oscillations rather than just doing you know, only kind of rate codes or something. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I guess there are some proposals out there, like the, I mean, the one that's always seemed intuitively compelling to me, but you know, maybe would benefit from um, you know, really, I don't know, more simulations or computational modeling of, yeah, is, is that idea of can you do dynamic game control with it, right? Like, can you, can you even though you have no Changes in rate per se um, systematically enhance or suppress specific inputs um, again it's not to say that there aren't other ways of doing that, um, but I guess it's and this is an argument that I'm stealing from the Buzaki um, line of thought is that it's it's sort of energy efficient to, to not have to you know make radical changes in how many spikes you generate. You just say, okay, you find some number of spikes, and then even within that, you can shift things around, like not spending you know, more uh, ATP to generate more spikes, but just you know, by changing their timing and their alignment, uh, yeah, regulate the strength of certain inputs on a very fast timescale. Um, you know, it's not to say that that is definitely something that the brain is using, But I guess, yeah, sort of along the lines of, like, what in principle could be gained by doing something like this.
1: Yeah, so one thing that always bothered me a little bit about that question is because what we have access on is, like, how much, how would you store and gain information about signals uh, by modulating these different things, right? And how can we tell and use that as a signal? What I want to know is, like, who's the controller? Like, that seems fundamentally bigger question, Mm -hmm. and one might be much easier to control than the other strategy, independent of its representational, if I'm a neuron, can I tell the difference and what is easy? It may be, I don't care whether the neurons is easier, it's easier to control and make happen and make do in interesting ways, rather than like reading it out or something like that. So which is easier?
3: I which don't, is yeah, I, better to control.
1: I, I don't know. One thing about oscillations and regular things, and, I, and this is that you have multiple chances to do something in a similar thing. You, you repeat, you know, you come back to some similar thing that you can base the last cycle. I could do something different on this cycle that I can do something on that cycle. And then you can have things
3: build up or slow down. That's what, that's what makes it so exquisitely easy to change the phase of an oscillator. Because every little change that you make accumulates with the next one. And so actually getting a whole Mm -hmm. bunch of cells that aren't firing to fire to make your movement or something like that seems like a crazy large-scale organizational problem uh, for the controller, in Todd's way of thinking, rather than just nudging everybody to be slightly more in phase with each other. And now you have a group of neurons that are all doing something together who aren't doing more of yeah. anything? Yeah, that's they a much better way of saying what I. Yeah. Well,
2: right.
4: one, one thing to keep in mind is that you can have synchrony without oscillations, right? So, and physicists mm-hmm. formalize this very well. So, uh, there might be maybe something an angle to both of your questions. Um, the um, and this is emerging actually in hippocampus, you know, work in the bat by Nagu-Molanovsky showed that you, know, you might not have oscillations, but you might still have those properties that come from synchronies along the line of phase precession. But, and, but that's kind of experimental, but theoretically the idea has been around. So you could have um, you know, oscillations or even transient oscillations. You could still have synchrony, and synchrony might point with a distributed generation of that mechanism that um, make all the cells cooperate together and so who's the controller well the controller is distributed that's why I was asking it's like you know if you could and if you could make more progress in understanding um, perhaps if there is additional synchronization intrinsic in the striatum
2: um, you
4: know that, that might point us to Right, it an has to be in particular. the form
2: of a repeating yeah. harmonic kind of oscillation. Exactly, really. and right. um, so that might, yeah, be an that. Yeah. that might be an angle. But. Yeah, and, in, and speaking of like who is kind of controlling that, I think one thing that's an exciting future direction is um, if you think about the role of dopamine in the ventral strain, like um, it's known from the work of Josh Burke and others, that if you give systemic dopamine, you radically change um, the fuel potentials you record in stratum. Now, again, that might be you know, some of it is reflecting presumably action of dopamine or piriform cortex. But you know there there are ways in which you can reconfigure these circuits um, based on neuromodulators that are very different from the way, I guess, the traditional way of thinking goes. And if indeed it's the case that in terms of oscillations you see big differences, that would be a different avenue to explore sort of why some of the behavioral effects of those kind of pharmacological manipulations come about. It's not just manipulating, say, firing rates or plasticity. There's this other dimension, sort of the temporal coordination of activity um, that seems like in the striatum, ventral striatum in particular, hasn't really been explored.
3: So one difference about ventral striatum compared to places like cortex and hippocampus is that there's very maybe little, maybe no positive feedback in the circuit. Right. And there's negative feedback, but doesn't seem to be the kind of negative feedback that's able to really synchronize things. And the yeah. correlations among nearby stridal neurons are rare. Yeah. And, the, the, so, you know, the, does that tell us that we should be? You know, not expecting the striatum to be the origin of of oscillatory activity, but rather the recipient of it, or...?
2: Yeah, right. So it's (laughs) embedded in these larger loops that maybe have other nodes that, whose properties are more uh, conducive to generating oscillations out of non-oscillatory inputs. There's other places, Um,
3: like... Remarkably, specifically, the targets of the striatum are all oscillators that run completely independently. Right,
2: like you've pointed out, sort of so firing rates that are just going spontaneously. And, yeah.
3: and they don't need positive feedback because they are oscillatory neurons. Every single one of them is oscillatory. So that it's, it's sort of weird that this striatum, where there's almost no way to generate an oscillation,
2: yeah, it could be that it's just uh, some kind of dynamic ballast. <laughs> <laughs> okay, it's, it's attached to you know, the actual generators, and you, know, you get this um, influence without it being uh, you know, sufficient to generate those oscillations. Yeah, I think that that is a possibility. Yeah. Okay.
0: Well, thank you for joining us, Matt Vandermeer. Meer. Yeah, pleasure to be here. Thank you. Neuroscientist Talk
2: Shop.